All right, well, we're in week two of our wide open door series. And, and it's a metaphor, of course. That door metaphor is very popular. In fact, in the Bible, the door metaphor is used over 250 times to talk about our relationship with God and relationship with one another. The context of a door metaphor really is very popular in the Bible. It's also popular in our own vernacular. We use door metaphors all the time. We talk about walking through a door. That's a decision that we make or an opportunity to have. We talk about a door is closed, meaning I can't get through, right? We talk about closing the door on something. That means I'm done with that, right? We talk about crossing a threshold of a door. That's a new opportunity, a new reality. You know, back in the day, the, the new husband would, would take his bride over the threshold. I don't think we do that anymore. I think the bride's taking the husband over the threshold these days. Uh, that's okay. Uh, we talk about which door to choose. There's choices available. I got to choose one. Uh, there's this phrase, one door closes, another opens. It means I'm going through a challenge, but boy, there's a better day ahead. We talk about a, a door opening, meaning a new opportunity. And then we talk about a door is always open. Come over to the house, door is always open. Well, it's actually not always open. It's a metaphor that means I'm inviting you into my house. So we use that metaphor often. Biblical metaphor, it's a metaphor in our vernacular. It's also been a part of many cultures, including the first century culture, both Hebrew and, and Greek culture use doors often. In fact, in the Greek culture, there was a God of the door. This is Janus. Uh, one head looking back, one head looking forward, that through that door, you can have a new opportunity. The God of the gate, the God of the open door. So doors can mean a lot of things. Moving through difficulties or challenges, entering into a new space, uh, taking advantage of new opportunities, leaving maybe sadness or loss or brokenness behind a bit, and going into a new life forward, a transition point to change, those kinds of things. So the door metaphor is very, very powerful and biblical. Here's the most uh, famous door, one of the most famous doors in human history. It's the Wittenberg door, Wittenberg door. Now, if you know your history at all, about 500 years ago, um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, tacked 95 theses on that wall. And these are 95, um, really, arguments against the established church, 95 grievances against the church that had become corrupt. The church was selling indulgences. In other words, you give, you give the church money and you will have sins forgiven, right? So if you were rich, it was party on, right? Hey, <laughs> no problem, I can pay for that. Or you could pay money and they will pray your loved one out of purgatory. I mean, it was, it was bad. So this reformer tacked these 95 theses on the wall to say, hey, listen, um, this is shutting the door of the church. This corruption is shutting the door of the church. And these reformers wanted that door open, so they tacked the 95 grievances on a door. Open this door. Open this door to God. Let people enjoy the grace of God, right? Stop the corruption. Stop the manipulation, church. And it began a whole new movement today. Now, for the most part, people see God as this kind of a door. We talked about this last week, that God is a big, majestic God, kind of a fearful, ominous being, and, and we go through this narrow, thick door, right? And if we're obedient enough or religious enough, righteous enough, or do enough spiritual things, God will get us in that door, maybe. He'll bless our life, answer a prayer, or get us into heaven. That's what most people think of God. But Jesus came to show us that God was entirely different than this kind of door. In fact, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. The door's not a religion, religious rites. The door's not being a moral or a good person. The door is a person, Jesus Christ. We talked about that in depth. I am the door, Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
through me, the door that gets to God the Father. You will enjoy a relationship with God freely by grace and have a life of freedom in and out and finding pasture, a life of peace and rest. No matter what's going on in life, you will have that peace and rest that God promises. Jesus says, God is an open door and I am that door. So Jesus is the wide open gate to God. That's what we talked about last week. Jesus was crucified to pay for the sins of the world. He rose again from the dead in victory over sin and death. And then he taught his disciples for a few weeks and ascended into heaven. He left. Jesus left. So if Jesus is the open door to God and Jesus is no longer here, the question is, so then what? So then what? If Jesus is the open door to God, he's no longer here, then what do we do? Well, Jesus left us with a gift. He left us with a gift. He said, it's actually better that I go because I am one person in one time, fullness of divinity, but veiled in the fullness of humanity. I'm gonna send you my Holy Spirit who will not just be with you, but will be in you and will empower you to do what I've been doing. Jesus says the mission doesn't end because I go to the Father. The mission of being an open door to the world so that the world would enjoy the grace of God, that mission belongs to the church. The same Holy Spirit that empowered the ministry and mission of Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that empowers the mission and ministry of us today. 2 Corinthians 5.18 is a wonderful passage. It says, through Christ, God reconciled us to himself. So Jesus is the wide open door to God the Father, and then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That means we continue to be that door to God. To put it this way, Jesus is the wide open gate to God. We learned that last week. This week, we're going to talk about the church being the wide open gate to Jesus. That's a big responsibility. We're not here to kill time. We're not here to do religious you know, duties. We are, just, we are here to be the wide open door so that the world will come through the church to Jesus and through Jesus to God the Father, to enjoy his grace, enjoy new and eternal life with him freely as a gift. This is powerful. This is us. We are the church. We are the wide open gate to Jesus. So here's the question today. How can the church be a wide open door inviting the world to experience God's grace through Jesus Christ? That's our job, to be a wide open door to this world, to Jesus. But here's the problem. The problem is right now, before our eyes, literally and figuratively, the doors of the church are shutting. Literally and figuratively, the doors of the church are shutting. In fact, on any given year, it is estimated that about 5,000 churches are shutting their doors in America. 5,000 churches a year shutting their doors. About 17% of Americans are in church. That's the lowest recorded. The reputation of the church took a huge hit in the 80s and the 90s as judgmental, exclusionary, doomsday, just obsessed on end times, money-loving, fake, and hypocritical. That's become the reputation of the church in so many people's heads. Now, some of it you can say, all right, that's a little overblown, but some of it is legitimate stuff, right? The West is right now experiencing a freedom from organized religion, and they are loving it. They're loving it. The West is saying, you know what? I was raised in, in this, this religious environment, and hypercritical, and I was never good enough, and I needed to obey more and be better and pray more and read more and do the disciplines more, and that weight is real, and people are leaving the church and experiencing the freedom of not having that weight on their shoulders. The West is also enjoying the reality that we don't need God as much as we used to. Now, follow me on this. There's a phenomenon called God in the gaps, right? Where we don't know about something, we say God did it. For example, 
not too long ago, a couple hundred years ago, we didn't really know why the weather did what it did. And so, you know, even then, hey, God brings the rain and God causes the drought because he's judging somebody, right? Well, now we know why weather works. We know why the rain comes and we know why the drought comes. And it's not a work of God, it's just physics, right? Meteorology. Same thing with disease. We used to think not too long ago, just a couple hundred years ago, that we got sick because we did something wrong and God is cursing us and punishing us. Well, now we know about bacteria and we know about viruses and we know about genetics. Those gaps where we shove God are getting smaller and smaller. How did we get here? Cosmology is really blowing up that. I mean, it is blowing up. It's really fun. What's happening? God in the gaps, right? So the gaps in terms of our knowledge base are so small. We used to need God because we didn't know much of anything. That's God's doing. So let's appease God so things work out. Now we know it's just physics. And so we don't need God as much anymore. So how does the church react to that? How how does the church respond to that changing culture? Here's the reality. Jesus is the wide open door to God, but the door to Jesus is shutting as the church is declining. And that can't stand. It just can't stand. It can't remain like that. And the church knows it, so thankfully the church is involved in an amazing discussion. The same discussion we're having now is happening all over the place, all over the world, in terms of how the church responds to an ever-changing culture that is squeezing out God a little bit, but really what they're doing is squeezing out the church. And if we squeeze out the church, and if people are not involved or engaged in the church, the body of Christ, they are simply not going to walk through what God designed to introduce the world to Jesus. And so people might have a faith of their own, and they might, they might think, oh, I think God is like this, and I think God is like this, but they're not in a community called the church that Jesus instituted to bring the world to him, and he brings the world to the Father. And so this matters. So we need to ask ourselves some questions. How do we change to respond to this changing culture? And there's some sub-questions in there. What shouldn't change? I mean, there are some things that we just should not change. If we change certain things, we're no longer going to be you know, Christian, we're no longer going to be following Christ. There's some things we have to hold on to, right? And then what should change? What are the things that we are really compelled to change? We need to change. And then the dreaming, what could change? What could change going forward about the church to make us more relevant and to advance the cause of Christ in even better ways? So first question is what shouldn't change? What shouldn't change? And these are pretty simple things. The core essential message should not change. In the Greek, that core message was called the kerygma. Uh, It's then called the gospel. Um, That message we studied in our series through Philippians 2 called the creed, just the core message. And it's very simple. It's not a big, long list of doctrines. It's just pretty simple. And to me, the simplest expression is found in Colossians 2.13. You, individually and the world, were dead in our trespasses. That's our brokenness and, and sin, the things that we do to hurt each other the things that we do to um, you know, not be helpful and to cause some corruption and decay in the world. The world's just a broken place, right? We were dead in that. But God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us. Jesus forgave us through the cross and he raises us to a new life through the resurrection. If we think about Jesus and the cross to forgive us and the resurrection to give us new and eternal life, individually and globally, we've pretty much got the essential message. We've pretty much got that dialed in. To use the language of the reformers, It's about grace alone, not through any work of man, not through our religion, not through our good works, nothing. We can't get to God. We can't fix ourselves. It's only by God's grace. And God's grace is expressed through Christ alone. Since he is the full expression of God, the only way we know God is to know Christ. So it's only through Christ. Any man-made religion is just not the full expression of God, but Jesus is, so it's through Christ alone. 
And then it's through faith alone. It's not about doing the right things. It's not about being the right kind of religious person. It's simply believing what God did through Christ because of his grace. It is that simple. It's not rocket science. It's not complex. That's the essential message. Then there's the essential culture, and this is fortunately also very easy. Jesus left us with a single thing to think about culturally. It's a four-letter word, starts with an L, ends with an of. What is it? Love. Good job. The culture is love. It's selfless service. That can never change. The core message shouldn't change. The essential culture shouldn't change. Colossians 3.14 says, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Jesus says, I have fulfilled all the commandments. Don't worry about 10 commandments, all the commandments of the Old Testament. I fulfilled them all. I'm leaving you with one law, and that's the law of love. Love God, love one another. That's the essential culture. And then there's the essential mission. The essential mission is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is the mission of the church. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses. You will tell of the love of Christ. You will live out the love of Christ. You'll grow in the love of Christ. That is our mission, to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God wasn't interested in just the Jewish people. He went to them first, but it's about the whole world embracing the grace of God through Jesus Christ. So what cannot change in the church? Our essential message, our essential culture of love, and our essential mission to be a witness to the world, right? That cannot change. Second question is what should change? As culture changes, not just in America and the West, but all over the world, as culture changes, so should the church change. If the church doesn't change along with the culture, the church won't be speaking the language of the culture. And then the church becomes irrelevant and dead. And that's the risk that's happening right now. So what should change? What should change is the context. The context should change. Now follow me here. Jesus was born a Hebrew, he was born a Jew. And so he gathered Jewish disciples and he raised up a church that was very Jewish in context. And so if you were a part of the very first Christian church, you would be 100% Jewish in context. You would be a Christian, you've embraced Jesus Christ as, as forgiver, as leader of your life, as, as the one who is the open door to God the Father, but you would be thoroughly Jewish. So you would worship on the Sabbath, which is a Saturday. You would worship in your synagogue, you would go to temple. You would wear the right clothes. You would be kosher. Uh, you would not eat bacon. I couldn't do it. You would circumcise your sons on the eighth day. Um, it, you, would, you would follow the commandments. You would sacrifice animals. I mean, that early Christian church was 100% Jewish. Now, if we decided as a church, hey, we're going first century, like true first century. We're going back to the beginning. Starting next week, no more Sunday services, all Saturday. Every family, you gotta go kosher. You gotta circumcise your boys on the eighth day. And we're gonna start sacrificing animals. I mean, whatever. How, how do you think that's gonna go over here in Los Estados Unidos? Not very well. Why? Because we're in a different culture, a different context, right? Um, so by the end of the fourth century, the church was almost entirely Roman in culture. And so a lot of things changed, right? Including the day of, of worship. Um, in the Hebrew context, it was culturally Saturday. In the Roman context, they worked on Saturday. They worshiped their gods on Sunday. So by 364 AD, we worshiped on Sunday. This ain't the Sabbath, right? This is the day the Romans worshiped the sun god. That's why we're worshiping Jesus on a Sunday. I mean, culture and context changes. And that's true all over the world. 
This church right now at Rancho in Temecula, it, we can't take what we do here and go to the Embu province of Kenya and have it work out because the African church needs to look and feel like Africa. The Chinese church needs to look and feel like China. The Mexican church needs to look and feel like Mexico. So the American church needs to look and feel like America, right? But sometimes in the church environment, it's like, no, we cannot change at all. We cannot change our context because that's compromise. Now, you don't compromise the message. You don't compromise the culture of love. You don't compromise your core mission, but everything else can change according to its context. And the reality is if the church doesn't take on the cultural characteristics of the community, it will not feel like home and the doors will shut. We have got to change with the culture. We have to or we're not speaking the language of the culture, and we're not relevant. Now, this is where a lot of church people get a little hyperventilated, and red flags start waving. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean we change everything and follow the culture? Does that mean our next sermon series at Rancho is gonna follow the Post Malone album, Beer Bong and Bentleys? Is that what we're gonna do because we wanna be the cool church? Well, no, that's not what we're gonna do, and if you don't know what beer bongs are, talk to Pastor Evan here. He'll he'll tell you all about it. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm totally kidding. But no, I mean, culture celebrates, you know, the, the mistreatment of, of women and materialism and partying. And I say, all right, well, that's generally speaking fairly destructive. So no, the church is not going to go that direction. That's silly, right? We, we kind of know. We're mature enough to know where we can morph with the context to speak the language and to be relevant in the community that we live. And we know, hey, we're just not going to go there. That's not in line with the cause of Christ, right? I love how the Apostle Paul put it. 1 Corinthians 9.20. This is very mature and very nuanced because Paul was getting hammered for changing his context. Paul says, to those under the law, so which culture is under the law, under the Old Testament law? Which culture is under the law? The Jews. Paul was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. He knew the deal. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. He says, but I'm not under the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. I'm free. Now, why did he become like a Jew? That he might win those under the law. Look at the next verse. To those outside the law, we're talking about the Gentiles, right? The the Romans and all the civilizations that they conquered. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, even though I put myself under the law of Christ, the law of love. Why did he become like a Roman when he was around Romans? That he might win those outside the law. He just knew what his job was. His job was to be a witness, right, to all the world. So when he was with the Jews, he was like a Jew. When he was with the Romans, he was like the Romans, you know, no big deal. Change your context, right? Change your context. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. Now get this, I love this. If this was the mantra of Rancho, I'd be so thrilled. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. This world needs the love of Christ. They need to know the unconditional love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. They need to know that through Christ, they are brought to an unbroken, unbreakable relationship with God the Father, unconditional love pouring out upon their lives. Nothing separates them from God. And that unconditional love can then pour out to your family and your neighbors and to the stranger and to the world, and the world changes and becomes more like heaven as a result. How's that gonna happen? When we become all things to all people, we learn to speak the language of our neighbors. And so this contextualization isn't just about a church contextualizing to the neighborhood. It's about us. We can contextualize like Paul did to our neighbors. What, where, where do our neighbors live and their past experiences? Where do our neighbors live and their perspectives and their family history and learn their language and relate to them in powerful ways? It's about contextualization, right? Love that. It's beautiful. So the, the core doesn't change, 
but the context changes. And if the context doesn't change, the unchanging message, culture, and mission will not be translated to diverse cultures and the cause of Christ will not advance. If the church doesn't change its context, the church will die. And I have a, a, a little denominational role. And in my role, I am involved in closing no fewer than three churches at a time. Why? They don't change. A, a, a white church in the 60s and 70s doesn't change when the community around them becomes multi-ethnic. And they just stay this white church in a multi-ethnic community and they shrink to death. They refuse to change. Or they're still reloading the same music and the same kind of irrelevant teaching and the same stuff because that's what they're comfortable with. If a church keeps living by what they're comfortable with, that church is dead, dead, dead. So what if we all had that attitude of the Apostle Paul? I will change whatever it takes. I will change, I, 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 will, I will release the things I'm comfortable with so that by all means necessary, those people who don't know the love and grace of God will know him because of the ministry of this church. And if we can come with that kind of selfless attitude, you know, I don't have to totally resonate with the music all the time, but if it's the language of our, of our culture, let's do it. I don't have to resonate with how the pastors teach, um, but man, if it's reaching the community, let's do it, right? By all means necessary, let's get the grace of God to our community. Let's contextualize. So context changes, tradition changes also. Traditions should change. Now, when I put that slide up, our traditional service at nine o'clock started laughing. And uh, we have fun with this. It's a great service. I mean, it's packed too. It's incredible. Um, we offer traditional music to people who, who enjoy connecting with God through traditional music. But they are not traditional culturally. And I, and I bragged on them for it at, at nine o'clock. You guys are a great group. I mean, the stage looks like this stage. I mean, in fact, drummers, electric guitars, and, and I mean, they, they like it a little bit loud. I mean, they're a little bit older, but they love being a part of a church that is reaching their community. And so they are selflessly engaging Rancho. And yeah, we, we give them the gift of the music that they like, but man, they are here to, to reach this community with the love and grace of God. But traditions change. Traditions change. Again, the Apostle Paul is a model of this. He is being a witness to all the world, so his ministry goes to Athens. Athens is the center of Greek gods, right? The Athenian uh, Areopagus and the, uh, the gods of Greek are in Athens, right? The idols of Greek, uh, of Greek are in Athens. And so he goes there and he builds relationship. He's becoming a Greek to win the Greeks. And so here's what happens. They take Paul and brought him to the Areopagus, the garden of the gods, saying to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, Paul. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. What a great opportunity. These people don't know anything about Jesus Christ. They are locked into this religious oppression, a thousand gods, 1,000 gods. And they have to appease 1,000 gods by their life, by their sacrifices. And there's no way they can possibly know whether they've appeased these gods. And there's no way they can know all the gods. So they invent another god called the god of the unknown. Like the unknown you know, tomb of the soldier, they have an idol of the unknown god. See, the Apostle Paul, being willing to change context and change traditions, he says, you know that God over there in the garden of the gods, the God of, that is unknown? I know that God. You think he got their attention? He's speaking their language. That God is Jesus Christ. And he goes on to, to, to in a lengthy way, teach them that this God is unknown to you now, 
but know him now and you will know that he's the supreme Lord of all. And many believed. It's incredible what happens if we're able to focus on what's really important and that is getting the love and grace of God to the world, changing our context, changing our traditions. So what, what should change about church ministry? Here's a quick list. Music style should change. I mean, uh, very often we will adopt the music style that we were raised on and that's the music of God, right? Well, music styles change. Teaching styles can change, formal, informal, conversational, Socratic. Days of worship can change. We already talked about that. The Sabbath day is Saturday, so you're all in morbid sin on a Sunday here. Uh, Days of worship can change, no problem. Modes of baptism, there's people who really hardcore in the mode of baptism. You know, it's immersion in the Jordan, that's it, right? And then it's immersion in a river, then immersion in a pool, and then sprinkling and all kinds of stuff. So big arguments about that. A lot of it is just kind of nonsense, missing the big picture to argue about the little traditions. Here's some stuff going on right now. Now we're getting into the big weeds. You ready? Let's have some fun. Women in leadership. You read the Bible and you see only Hebrew men in leadership. And there's some verses, Hebrew men in leadership. And so you might say, well, you see, you can only have Hebrew men in leadership. Well, they don't have to be Hebrew, but they have to be men. Really? Well, in the Roman literature, there are only Roman men in leadership. Does everybody have to be Roman? Do they have to be a man? Well, the culture changes. In America, we are celebrating women in leadership, and we want to see women rise to their full potential of leadership everywhere, right? In industry, business, in, in, in education, in media, and in church. Our culture is, is celebrating women uh, and celebrating all ethnicities, serving together wonderfully in diverse environments. And so it is wonderful that the church is on board with women in leadership. How about multi-ethnic ministry? Uh, I will say the church is actually leading the way in this. The church is the one who has always kind of pushed through um, this multi-ethnic uh, barrier. Church has some scars for sure in this regard. But multi-ethnicity, it used to be that uh, in every context, social context, religious context, you would kind of retreat to sameness. So there would be homogenous churches, the white church, the black church, the Spanish-speaking church, the Korean church, everybody's all over the place. That was normal. Well, now there's this new thrust that the church helped to, to push forward of a multi-ethnic community, multi-ethnic relationships, learning from each other, growing together in multi-ethnic environments. And so the church is leading that way big time. It's great, it's new, it's awesome. How about this one? Let's get into it, you ready? Sexuality, buckle up, you ready? Let's just say 20, 30 years ago, there was a cultural movement to correct a problem in our culture. People of diverse sexual preferences were being hurt, uh, abused, bullied, right? And so culture identified a problem. The culture woke up to a problem. Culture woke up to a problem that people who are sexually diverse were being bullied and abused. They also came to the conclusion that the biggest problem was in religious environments. Doesn't matter the religion, if you were in a religious environment and if you were sexually diverse uh, and a sexual minority, you would have the most harm in a religious environment. That's factually true. The most depression, the most anxiety, the most sense of rejection, the most loneliness, the most ideation of suicide, suicide, the more suicide attempts, the more suicide successes were in religious environments. Society uh, uh, um, recognized the problem and placed the problem, much of it, on religious environments. These things happen to be factually true. The church didn't come up with this. Culture did. 
So the conclusion was this should be fixed. This should be fixed. This is what culture has done. This is where culture is at. I don't want to say universally, but the majority. And I think it's a good thing. There is now a response required from the church. The church didn't, didn't wake up to this problem. Culture did. A lot of the problem is focused on the church. Now, what does the church do? There's a couple of options. Option number one is batten down the hatches. Culture has gone crazy. They're accepting and embracing everyone and everything. And it's compromising, you know, the moral standards. And so shut the doors, batten down the hatches. You know, uh, they are immoral. We are the moral ones. Pat ourselves on the back. They make me uncomfortable. We need to protect our children. You know, hide the women and children. They are coming. Batten down the hatches, shut the doors. Many Christian individuals, many Christian churches have this kind of an approach. There's a little hyperbole there, but you'll forgive me for that. The second option, and walk with me here, open our hearts and minds. This is where people have been walking out today. Don't walk out. Open our hearts and minds. Think humbly and reflectively about this. Admit that people who are sexually different have been hurt deeply in religious environments. Just admit it. It's, there's no harm to admitting that. It's true. We can hold a biblical ideal. Let me be clear. We can hold a biblical ideal that sexual desire and sexuality is for one man, one woman, in marriage, till death. We can agree that that is a biblical ideal. We also have to agree in humility that not a single person in this room adheres to that biblical ideal. Not a single person in this church adheres to that biblical ideal. Not a single person on the planet adheres to that, that biblical ideal. Let's have the humility to at least admit that and let's open our doors. Let's open our doors. The church has a well-deserved reputation that will open our doors to people who fail in areas we're comfortable with and can identify with. We're not comfortable opening our doors to people who fail in ways and struggle in ways that we cannot identify with or are not comfortable with. Let's open our doors in humility. Let's invite everyone everywhere to come and see and experience the grace of God through Jesus Christ in a loving and accepting community of faith on a journey together. And let's watch what God does in a community of grace in all of us, right? To walk us towards the likeness of Jesus Christ. Let's be an open door church. And if you ever wonder how to do that, because some people think, you know, you, you either close the door, batten down the hatches, protect the women and children, the culture's out to get us, let's keep them away, let's talk about how holy and righteous and right we are and how unholy and wrong everybody else is, or you open the doors to the church and anything goes, we don't care, come in, do whatever you want to, you want to cheat on your spouse, whatever, grace. Some people think lazily it's one or the other. It's not. If you ever wonder what to do, look at the life and ministry of Jesus. Look at what he, he did with the tax collector, befriended, accepted the tax collector, befriended, accepted the uh, adulterer, befriended and accepted those who were labeled sinners by the religious people. He built relationship and he loved and he accepted them and walked with them on a journey of faith that's not nice and easy and clean and neat for any of us, right? For any of us. What shouldn't change? What shouldn't change is the essential message, the essential culture, the essential mission. What should change, the context and traditions that keep people out. Let's change those and invite the world in. And then finally, what could change, and this is super fun. This is about the imagination. What could change? What's possible? Right, and I'll be brief here. 
It's a very interesting question that asks something like this. What if the church wasn't reacting late to an ever-changing culture, but what if the church was proactively engaged in the world around us and on the leading edge of bringing change to this world? Was Jesus on the leading edge of changing the world? 100%. Church has lagged behind. Church is now kind of traditional. We'll do what's comfortable to us. And if the culture changes around us, then we'll react late and usually pretty badly. What if we said not only what should change, but what could change? What could be if we really attached ourselves to the cause of Christ and really worked towards a world that Jesus envisioned, the kingdom of heaven on earth? Now, if we were clear about what should not change, essential message, essential culture of love, essential mission, if that doesn't change, now we have the, content, uh, the confidence to go into, the, into this world and say, hey, I know what I'm not gonna change, I know what I'm not gonna compromise, now let's go for it. Let's, let's figure out what the problems are in this world and let's solve those problems. And if we're clear about what should change the context and traditions, we're gonna be very flexible and very nimble in this world. And then we can imagine what could change, what does heaven on earth look like and how can I contribute to that? What does heaven on earth look like and how can we as a church move the needle so, so that this congregation is shaping a city and shaping a world and moving the needle so that this world looks more and more like heaven? Let's talk freely about the Western church. The Western church or the Western culture still believes in God. Over 90% of people believe in God. That's cool. Jesus is still the most popular human being in history. That's cool. Everybody loves Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. Identifying as a Christian by religion is declining. I'm not sure that's all bad. Participation in the church is seriously declining. And we have to pay attention to that. But here's what's really happening. Here's what the culture is really saying. The culture is rejecting religion as an industry. That's not all bad. The religious industry can be corrupt, very self-centered, false promises, manipulation, treating people like children, right? They're rejecting that. That's not bad. The West is rejecting judgmental moral policing. Jesus did too. The West is rejecting a lack of generosity as the church manipulates people to give offerings to the church for its own benefit and not being generous with the world around them, helping people that are in need. The world's tired of that. It's a good thing. The world is rejecting treating people like children. And what do I mean? Pastors tell people what to believe. The world is over that. I hope you're over that too. Um, I had a conversation the other day. I, I'm at Rancho because, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I believe with what, in what you say. It's like, well, you know, maybe be done with that. You, hopefully you're not here because you believe what I say. I'm one voice of many, not many teachers, but many here. We're thousands of friends, right? I'm one voice. And I spend a little bit of time in God's word and, and I certainly lead a bunch of stuff around here. So I hope I have a positive contribution. You do not need to agree with everything I say. One of the favorite things I get is an email saying, hey, I don't think you were quite right in this area. And I say, well, you might be right. Here's what I think, here's why I thought it, but hey, feel free to disagree. I love it, people go out to lunch, people are around their dinner table. Hey, Treadway was an idiot today. I don't believe at all with what he said there. Great, that is awesome. No problem with that, right? I hope I'm right maybe more than 50% of the time. But listen, you've got a brain, you're an adult. You don't need somebody else telling you what to believe. I want this to be a discussion starter, right? That's a different kind of perspective. Unthinking ideas and traditions. Oftentimes the church life just keeps pouring in the ideas and traditions that we were given, right? And we just pour it out. Well, listen, the world is changing. Science is changing. The, 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 I mean, the collaboration of the world is changing a lot. The church needs to be in on that change, right? And not just reloading and regurgitating unthinking ideas and traditions. 
And then false promises about how to manipulate God to bless your life. Hey, you do this and God will do this, right? If you're a good person, religious person, God will answer your prayers. If you're faithful, God will be faithful to you. If you give money, he'll give money back to you. I mean, if you do this, you're gonna be healed. If you say these words, you're gonna be healed. I mean, we're over it, over it. We don't need to treat people like children anymore. So the question is, how can the church hold tight to the things that should not change while imagining what could change in order to advance the cause of Christ in this world that God so loves. 15 years ago, Rancho thought about what could change in church in our community. What if there was a truly grace-based church? Not a Christian church that talks about grace, there's a huge difference, a grace-based church, everything, the very foundation of everything we do is based on God's freely given, unconditional grace. Religion is pushed to the side and all we do is enjoy God's glorious grace. What if there was a church like that? What if there was a church that focused on the cause of Christ, not advancing a Christian religion, but advancing the cause of Christ and evaluating everything that we do? Is that what Jesus actually did? Let's do that. If he didn't actually do that, then maybe we shouldn't do it. What if there was a church that focused on helping people in need, whereas resources come in, a huge chunk of that goes back out, and our goal is a majority going out. We're almost at a million dollars a year going outside the doors to help people in need. What if we focused on the prayer of Jesus? Jesus says, pray that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. What if we focused on earth becoming heaven and not a doomsday church, the end is near, let's get out of here, but heaven is coming to earth, let's be a part of that. What if there was a school, a Christian school that wasn't kind of the typical plucking little Johnny and Susie Christian out of the world into the safety of a Christian school, but what if we actually equipped leaders to engage the world well? University ready, life ready, what would that look like? And then what if we were a learning community? What if we were a learning community? Not just a few leaders or one leader downloading, here's what to believe and here's what to do, but we learned together, realizing that I could be right, I could be wrong, you could be right, you could be wrong, but together we're gonna trust that God's gonna lead us down the road to be more like Christ and advance the cause of Christ and make the world a little more like heaven. Now we're imagining a a new Wednesday service that starts in September that's unlike anything I've ever seen in church. It's going to be pretty cool. And then we talked about, we're envisioning right now what could be, what could change, a a Rancho Studio leadership development environment where young leaders and young-minded leaders come together and, and do projects together that take the cause of Christ and change the world. We're envisioning building content creation platforms that bless our city not just Christians, but bless the city in powerful ways. We're imagining a church that grows wonderfully with no new staff, no new staff. About five years ago, just told the staff, no new staff, don't even think about it. If we double in size as a church, no new staff. We wanna raise up leaders. You guys are talented, men and women, talented. You have so much you're doing in life and in family and your neighborhood and community. And let's, let's not hire staff, let's not spend good, honest church money on building huge staffs Let's equip each other for the work of ministry and let's take that resource and advance the cause of Christ and help people in need. What if there is a church like that? I mean, these are the things that are fun, right? And these are the things I think would change a church from being an ever-closing door and turn that around and open the door wider and wider and wider so that the church and this church can be a wide open door, the world coming to Christ through his church and through Christ coming to God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we have ingested and are digesting a lot today. There's a ton of stuff here. 
And I pray that this would be a discussion starter, that, that a lot of things would be stirred in our minds and our hearts and, and, and in our community as a church about who we are and, and who we might become. It's our prayer that we would be an open door, loving everyone everywhere, an open door. We certainly see that in the life and ministry of Jesus. We want everyone, no matter where they come from, to be able to be in relationship with us in the community and feel comfortably uh, and warmly embraced. And should they darken the door of this church, whether it's on a, a Sunday or, or coming up on a Wednesday or in a small group or a, a, a community mission of hope, wherever we get to serve, when they come across a ministry of ours, that they would experience nothing but a warm welcome and a loving and accepting environment. May they feel the love of Christ because they feel that through us. And God, it's our, our pleasure to, to be able to walk a difficult road of how to change context and tradition and to imagine what could change to be a wide open door church that everyone would feel the warm welcome of the kingdom of heaven, that they would feel peace, that they would feel acceptance and love uh, unlike ever before in their lives, that they would enjoy a community of faith that is together a learning community wanting to advance the cause of Christ together. In his name we pray and everybody said, amen.